American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about Mother Matilda Beasley, who was born a slave but became a wealthy woman in post Civil War Georgia, only to give it all up to serve the poor and found the first order of black nuns in Georgia. Mother Beasley is an interesting case. Not much is really known about her life, but what is known is remarkable. She really shows us what matters most in life. And it's not living a life of ease and comfort. Right. She could have had ease and comfort after she inherited her husband's wealth, but she chose to give it all away and work to earn a living and to support orphans and the poor. So tell us what is known about where she came from. Well, Mother Matilda Beasley was born Matilda Taylor in either 1832 or 1834 in New Orleans. Her mother, Caroline, was a black slave woman who was owned by a man named James Taylor. Her father is not known. Some speculate that it was James Taylor himself, but most believe that her father was of Native American heritage. This Native American heritage is credited with giving her significant height as an adult. It is said that she had a commanding presence. You can also see Native American heritage in the only known photo of her, which shows high and prominent cheekbones and a somewhat lighter skin. We should point out that there are two photos that are thought to be of her, but one of them is of a darker-complected woman wearing a dress from the 1890s. But Mother Beasley would have been about 60 at that point, and the woman in this photo is definitely younger than 60. Right, so the other photo is more likely of her. But let's get right to her adulthood, because nothing really is known of her first nearly 20 years of life. One source we found indicates that she was baptized at the Cathedral of St. Louis in New Orleans, but that is not certain. One thing that is clear, however, is that she received an education. When we finally do pick up her story, she was able to read and write and conduct business and to teach others. Right. This part of her story starts in the 1850s. Somehow she became a free woman and made her way to Savannah, Georgia, where she made money as a seamstress. But she was also doing something else, which was potentially very dangerous to her. Right. She was secretly educating slave children. Naturally, since she had been born into slavery, she had sympathy with the slave children in Savannah, and since she had been educated as a youth, she knew the importance of it. So she began teaching them in her own home secretly. But this was somewhat of a dangerous thing to do because long-standing Georgia state law forbade educating slave children, and if she had been caught, she would have been fined $100 and received 32 lashes with a whip in the public square. This in spite of being a free black woman. Right, that didn't matter. That was the punishment for a black person being caught educating slave children. For comparison, if a white person was caught educating slaves, the punishment was a $500 fine, but no lashes. Only black people, even though not slaves, were threatened with a public whipping if they broke this law. But she did it anyhow and was never caught. Now, to be fair, many people, black and white, took similar risks and were not caught. The educating of slaves was very much an open secret. Most everyone knew that it was being done, but no one talked about it, and everyone who did it was discreet about it, so no one made a fuss. Right, but that doesn't mean there was no risk. If the unforgiving state authorities, rather than the local authorities, decided to start doing raids, they probably wouldn't have been so likely to turn a blind eye. 
So discretion on the part of the teachers and the pupils was necessary. They would change the location of classes. They had hiding places in their houses for the students. And students would conceal their books in their baskets as they walked to and from class, like hiding them under dung chips they used for fire fuel. So Matilda Taylor educated children and worked as a seamstress up until 1861 when the Civil War started. Then everything went into upheaval. Right. And when the Civil War was over, she took up work at a restaurant in Savannah called the Railroad House and became close with its owner, a prominent and well-off black businessman named Abraham Beasley. Beasley was a widower and he had a son who was also named Abraham. The elder Abraham Beasley had land holdings in and around Savannah, and he owned several fairly successful businesses in town. He had also made money in a somewhat surprising way. Right. He had profited in the slave trade. But in spite of this, Matilda and Abraham were married in 1869. Before getting married, however, since the Beasleys were Catholic, Matilda was conditionally baptized. Conditionally, because she had no actual record of having been baptized back in New Orleans. They had no children of their own, but lived out a happy marriage until Abraham's death in 1877. In his will, he left all of his money, his holdings, and his business interests to Matilda. She was suddenly a very wealthy woman. But that didn't last long. She donated the entirety of her newfound wealth to the Catholic Church. Some say her motivation in doing this was at least partly to atone for her late husband's profiting from the slave trade. It is also said that she intended for it to be used, at least in part, to open an orphanage for black children. Either way, she returned to making a living as a seamstress. But during this time... She also developed a desire to become a nun. Now, there weren't many opportunities for black women to enter religious life in the United States at that time. Some states forbade religious communities to be mixed, so orders of white women wouldn't be allowed to admit black women. We've encountered that before in this podcast. In Matilda's hometown in New Orleans, Mother Henriette de Lille had faced this sort of discrimination in establishing her religious community, the Sisters of the Holy Family. You can learn more about Mother DeLille and what she endured in episode 13 of this podcast. Right. So Matilda Beasley took another approach. In 1885, she went to England and entered a Franciscan community in York. That's a big step. What is known about how she came to that decision? Well, the definite story is not known, but there is an interesting coincidence which could explain it. In 1884, some poor Clare nuns came to Savannah to work with poor blacks in Savannah and on nearby Skidaway Island. It seems that the poor Clares had been invited to Savannah to establish a convent and a school. One of the nuns in this community had previously belonged to a Franciscan community in York, England. Now, there's no direct evidence that Mother Beasley did significant work with these nuns or that their presence influenced her decision to join the Franciscans, but the timing of their arrival in Savannah and her subsequent departure for York does suggest a connection. But regardless of how it came about, she spent two years in York before returning to Savannah, where she desired to establish a community of Franciscan nuns. Unfortunately, none of the Franciscan orders would officially recognize her organization. No, they wouldn't. But like Mother DeLille, 30-some years earlier, she didn't let that stop her. With the help of Sacred Heart Church in Savannah, the parish where she had donated all of her late husband's wealth, she opened an orphanage for black girls in 1887, the St. Francis Home for Colored Children. Two years later, in 1889, despite the lack of formal support from official orders of nuns, Matilda Beasley established the first community of black nuns in Georgia as Third Order Franciscans. As foundress, she became known as Mother Matilda Beasley. The orphanage functioned on some donations and support from the parish, but mostly through Mother Beasley's determination and hard work. 
Money was never in plentiful supply, and the kids they took care of weren't always the easiest. In fact, in 1895, a group of unruly teenage girls caused damage to the orphanage by setting fire to it more than once. But still, Mother Beasley persevered. She secured donations and assistance from the Diocese of Savannah, from Cardinal Gibbons in Baltimore, and many others. This would have been difficult for most anyone, but especially for a poor black Catholic woman in late 19th century Savannah. But Mother Beasley was nothing if not persistent and tenacious. In 1898, another group of Franciscan nuns was sent to Savannah to help out, and they effectively took over the orphanage. Mother Beasley's order dissolved at this point, with one sister dying and another leaving to join an order in the north. For herself, Mother Beasley continued working with the orphans, teaching and helping as best she could with her advancing age. She was given a cottage to live in near Sacred Heart Church, and she once again took up work as a seamstress, giving all she earned to the orphanage and other poor blacks in Savannah. By this point, her reputation as a great and humble woman of charity was known throughout the city by people of all faiths. So it was a sad day on December 20th, 1903, when Mother Matilda Beasley was found dead in the little chapel in her home. She was prostrate on the floor, hands clasped in prayer, arms outstretched as though she had died in the midst of deep devotion. But it seems that Mother Beasley knew her death was near. Beside her on the floor was folded neatly the shroud and garments in which she desired to be buried, and careful instructions for her funeral and burial. Her funeral mass was standing room only and was attended by Catholics and Protestants. So many had been affected by her generosity. In her obituary the following day, the Savannah Morning News said, Protestants speak in the highest terms of her life and character, and among the Negroes the feeling prevails that they have lost their best and truest friend and benefactor. She was also called the idol of the poor, especially among the Negroes. Since her death in 1903, her contributions to the community and the church have been recognized in many ways. In 1982, a city park was named for her in the city of Savannah, and in 2014, her cottage was restored and moved to the park where it is now open to the public on select days. There is not yet a cause open for her canonization. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please be sure to give us a rating and a review. To learn more about today's topic, to find previous episodes, and to send feedback, please visit sqpn.com slash history. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on social media at facebook.com slash American Catholic History or follow StarQuest on Twitter at sqpn. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest.